Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sociology. This is your hostess, Annie Sepukaya. Today we are talking to Sandra Chait, author of Seeking Salam, Ethiopians, Eritreans, and Somalis in the Pacific Northwest, published by the University of Washington Press in 2011. Sandra Chait is currently an independent scholar in Seattle and is originally from South Africa. She received her doctorate in English from the University of Washington, where she taught African literature and served as associate director of the university's program on Africa. In her book, Seeking Salam, Ethiopians, Eritreans, and Somalis in the Pacific Northwest, Chait records her in-depth interviews of over 40 East African immigrants living in the Pacific Northwest. By reading her interview, we learn of these survivors' struggles for identity and the challenges that each group faces, especially when it comes to their relationship with the other two groups. As Chait demonstrates, the coexistence among Somalis, Ethiopians, and Eritreans is often a strained and bitter one, resulting from long-standing animosity and violence among these groups in the Horn of Africa. Chait has also authored journal articles and reviews relating to African, American, and British literature, and in 2005, she co-edited Hayford Hall, Hayford Hall, Erotics, Hangovers, and Modern Aesthetics, published by Southern Illinois University Press. Good afternoon, Sandra. Good afternoon, Annie. We are talking to you today about your book, Seeking Salam, Ethiopians, Eritreans, and Somalis in the Pacific Northwest. Um, it says in the book that you actually grew up in apartheid South Africa. Um, right. How did that influence you in terms of writing this book, and what led you to write this book? Um, well, let me let me take the second part of the question first. Okay. Um, I, it started out because I, I had this Eritrean friend, and she used to talk to me um, about her country in these glowing terms, and you know, she'd tell me how wonderful the people were, how they'd all fought together, you know, for their independence, and how now they were still working together, united to try and create. Their, their new country, and um, she so impressed me that that I went with um, two colleagues to Eritrea, and we we found the country to be just like she said. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, that was that was in 2001, and a lot has changed since then, and the country isn't like that at all anymore. But um, at the time, we were very very impressed, and we we started a. A, um, a partnership between the University of Asmara and the University of, of Washington. And, um, and then when we went back, um, I, I was teaching African literature and um, also running the African Studies program. I was Associate Director of, of um, the program on Africa. And so I had a lot of uh, East Africans in, you know, who came to my lectures or who I, I counseled. And um, as I got to know them, they would talk to me about, um, you know, their lives and uh, what had happened to them, how they had got here, and um, uh, a little bit about their, their, their history. And, and then um, the students of, of the other ethnic groups would come in and they'd tell me their stories too, and often they were about the same events, but they would be contradictory. Right. And so um, this wasn't a surprise to me because I had grown up in South Africa uh, during the apartheid era, and I knew that 
competing stories could exist simultaneously. You know, um, in South Africa, uh, you know, the the when I was growing up, it was the white Africana narrative that had dominance. And mm-hmm. um, uh, what I also knew, though, was that whoever was in power was able to valorize their people's story and suppress everybody else's. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wondered what would happen to all these stories that I, I was hearing, you know, um, and would they be lost to time? So I wanted to keep some kind of um, record or to bear witness so that um, at least the next generation would have some kind of uh, written account of what their parents were, were going through at a particular time and place. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that, that's how I came to, you know, to, to write the book. Right, because you started to hear about these stories and you thought it was important to, um, to kind of share it with the world because most people don't hear about that. That's right. That part of the world in general, yeah. Right. Yeah. Just, um, well, you also say, though, that even though um, a lot of places have competing immigrant stories where people will tell different versions of things that have happened to them, you say that it's kind of worse um, for the people from the Horn of Africa. Could you explain that a little bit? Right. Um, the reason why I think so is because uh, in the Horn of Africa, all three countries are still unstable. Um, you know, there's still violence going on in, in each one of them, and many of the people... Um, the the refugees and immigrants who are here in the United States still have family there, and they can be imprisoned, they can be tortured, they can be killed. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's that's one reason. And the second reason is that um, uh, the refugees now have to contend with the Internet, which brings the violence straight into the living room. Mm. Um, so they, they kept up to date with, with everything that's happening back home and, and, and that keeps alive the anger and the, you know, the enmity. And even mm-hmm. if you, you, you try to avoid the, the blogs, the, the websites, there's still, um, you know, the cell phones and, and virtually every Eritrean, Ethiopian, Somali I've met has a cell phone. And they're constantly phoning back home to check on their families and so on. And the, mm-hmm. and the gossip goes round so fast, you know. One person hears something from home and soon the whole city knows. And right. so, you know, it, it's hard to, to ignore these existing, um, the, the competing stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no distance from it at all. Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, why, the reason why... Um, this is such a problem because I, I see it as one of the challenges of immigration. You know, beyond um, getting a job, uh, finding a school for your children, a home, all those sort of things, this, this is a major challenge because, um, you know, your, your story is so, um, 
so tied up with your identity. It's who you are. Hmm. And if, if somebody's um, story, if, you know, if they purposely contradict your story, they're not only, you know, subverting your story, they, they're contradicting or subverting your, your, very, your very identity, it's, you know, because you are your story. And, right. um, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, if, if you were an Amhara Ethiopian, um, you would believe that you came from this long line of, um, of, of royalty, really, from um, the house of David, the biblical house of David, because you would believe that the King Solomon, the Queen of Sheba, had the son Menelik, uh, Menelik I, who became, you know, em- emperor of Ethiopia, and mm-hmm. that Hail Selassie was the 235th descendant of this, this royal line. And so, given that kind of history, you, you think of yourself in a certain way, and you, you um, interact with people uh, in a certain way. And then, if an Eritrean neighbor then starts saying, um, well, actually... Menelik wasn't born in Ethiopia. He was born in um, Eritrean ter- territory, in Asmara, which by the river Maybella, which still runs through uh, Asmara today, then, you know, he's, he's contradicting what, what you've, uh, not just your story, but, you know, who you are. And, right. and if a Somali then comes along and also says, you know, well, in those days, there were no boundaries, and Ethiopia stretched all the way to Yemen. Who knows, you know, where all this happened? And in any case, who knows then, you know, about who who slept with whom? Mm-hmm. You know? Right, so, yeah. So, um, you know, and, and another example is, uh, and this, is, this one is pretty common, um, they'll an Eritrean will say they're Eritrean, and another Eritrean will say to him, no, you're not, you're Ethiopian. Mm. Say, no, I mean Eritrean. And, and the other person will say, no, but your, your parents were only in this country for, you know, so many years. And there'd, there'd be all these reasons why, no, you're not. Mm-hmm. But really... One should be able to choose one's identity. Yeah. I know that doesn't always happen, but really it should be your prerogative to say who you are. Sure, absolutely. Nobody knows you better than you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And I I do think we're we're, we're made up of our stories. Right. So in a way it's like there's two kinds of violence. There's the actual violence going on um, in those countries. And then there's a different kind of violence here with the suppression of stories or telling contradictory stories. Right. Or sort of a, a verbal, verbal violence. Right. 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 Verbal abuse. Yeah. yeah. So they're, they're amongst the older generation, too. Um, they're, they're people who the young call the sitting warriors, you know. Mm-hmm. And they're the people who keep a lot of this vitriol alive uh, right. through talk. 
and they they're, they're often you know older men who who maybe have lost status by immigrating they may have been elders in the old country you mm. know and and were highly respected and then when they got here maybe because they didn't have enough english or they weren't educated um weren't able to get jobs they had to mm. hand over influence to you know others and so right. they they kind of they keep all this stuff alive perhaps in the hope of you know one day returning to this imagined community you know that they left behind and regaining their their status mhm yeah and you said that the great the great majority of immigrants do have a plan to return but often never do that's right yeah now once you know once they get they get settled here and their kids are in school and of course i mean i think probably the most important thing is that um you know what do you return to if 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 there's still such violence in the country and oppression and um uh censorship of you know speech and and press you know and uh, somalia of course is still in a very very difficult state although they now have a elected prime minister as mm-hmm. as of yesterday i think it was oh is it yeah yeah and so why is it that there is so much fighting in that area i mean i know it's a complicated story but um <laughs> um I mean, well why, why did all of this occur to begin with oh it goes back centuries I mean Ethiopian and Somalia uh have been at, at each other since biblical times. Mm-hmm. That goes back a, a a long way. And it and I think it it's basically to do to do with land. Mm-hmm. And then later it, it it also became involved with religion. Um even though you know today I think that um Americans tend to think of Ethiopia as as this um Christian country and Eritrea as a Muslim country and neither is you know is one or the other they are both they are about 50-50 in each country Oh really yeah but generally speaking people think of Ethiopia as this Christian Christian country but it's really why why is that I had never heard that before. Yeah. yeah, I think it's just the way um the country, well the governments are Christ, are, are mostly Christian. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's probably why and Hail Selassie you know earlier on um was was very involved with the church. And so um you know he and the church ruled. And it's, and the idea is just carried on but it's not actually true. any longer. Hmm. So even currently today there's still quite a lot of physical violence among the three countries. Yes, um you know, most of the violence is still in Somalia because that's where, you know, terrorism is going on. Um where the Al-Shabaab are fighting against the the well it used to be the transitional federal government but now it's going to be a, a more permanent government um an elected government so we'll see what happens um things may change there because uh 
America and various other European countries and Eastern countries are, are looking for, for, for petroleum. <laughs> you know, there's, there's oil there. And so now, um, you know, Britain and various other countries are, are you know, investing money in Somalia and um, trying to build infrastructure and, you know, shore up the government. But, right. but there is still a lot of uh, terrorism. And then the, the Ethiopians at, um, you know, the request of the United States has been fighting in Somalia to, mm-hmm. against the terrorists, trying to protect the, you know, this little fledgling government. Right. And uh, Eritrea, on the other hand, the U.S. says, is supporting the terrorists. And um, the president denies that, but it seems that they have proof that they, they, somebody there has been selling weapons and helping al-Shabaab. Mm-hmm. You'd say of Ethiopia that Ethiopia was the only country in Africa that was not colonized and that it's something that they're quite proud of? That's right. Uh, they're very proud of that. Um, they they defeated um, the Italian army at the Battle of Adwa, and um, and this this became a, a, a huge thing in um, in the world in America, particularly um, because it was the first time an, an African army had defeated a, a huge European army. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and, and, you know, the rest of Africa saw it as, you know, the hope of the future and um, uh, African-Americans particularly was, were so taken with um, the Ethiopian story and, um, you know, many of them even volunteered to, to fight for Ethiopia. Really? Yeah. Um. And this kind of animosity that exists between these communities in the Pacific Northwest, yes. does it tend to spill over into their children's lives? Because I would imagine that children, for the most part, just want to fit in. Um, it, are there problems with the children, or is this something that is um, mainly their parents that have a, a problem with? It's mainly their parents, and the children try to move on um, but they do feel it, you know. Mm-hmm. There is pressure from the parents. Not, you know, how can you date that boy? His his ancestors, you know, slew my ancestors or something like right. that, you know. Um, yeah. But the, the young don't want to be, you know, pulled back. They just, as you say, they want to fit in. They want to move on with their lives. They're following their American dreams. They're getting educated. Fortunately. All of these communities believe strongly in education, and so the young mm-hmm. people, you know, they, they well, I, I shouldn't say they are all doing fine, um, you know, as with all immigrant groups, there are kids who, who fall behind and get involved in, um, you know, drugs and, and um, things like that. Right, yeah. And, and how does this community... Um how do they, um, what's their relationship like to 
to Americans in general, because, I mean, I, I, I've never been to the Pacific Northwest, but in general, I think um, Americans and Westerners in general really don't have any idea about <laughs> any of these countries. Um, and all that we ever hear about is, uh, you know, poverty and, and strife and that kind of thing. But Right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, no, I think I agree that there's, there is a lot of ignorance, but um, because we have quite large communities of those groups here, people are, mm-hmm. are quickly picking it up, you know, and learning about, about these communities. Um, uh, and actually, it's interesting, um, you know, even religion has become a big um, issue, not an issue, but uh, has become more important for a lot of refugees, you know, mm-hmm. probably because they're, they're homesick, they're nostalgic, and, sure. um, you know, going to the church or the um, mosque, you know, they, they're with all their people and they're speaking their language and um, you know uh, it, it helps them as a community but what I was going to say was that uh, as a result of this for example um, a lot of young modern Somali girls for example will you know will cover their heads wear hijab mm-hmm. and very very proudly it's almost like taking back the veil or something like that you right. know and um, and as a result, uh, you know, many many other Muslim school children who previously not worn it have taken to wearing it. You know, interesting. Yeah, yeah. and um, uh, you know, I, I, certainly amongst the young, I, I don't think that. Um, you know, I think they they're pretty uh, familiar with you know with the cultures now. Um, they. There, there are lots of Ethiopian restaurants, for example, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I think people are familiar with, with the food. Um, uh, right. a, you know, African Americans um, probably knew a little bit more than mm-hmm. Caucasians. Um, right. And uh, so they're not fully in the dark. They do have some notion of um, of what happens in that community and of the problems that are present. Um, a little bit, but but bit. you know, as yeah. you say, it, it, it's mostly the you know the, the famines and um, mm-hmm. you know uh, the terrorism, right? So. And in this community, um, well, in this, these communities, what is the role of women? Um, you have a chapter on how important women are and what they do to kind of uh, keep the peace, so to speak. Um, yes. Well, I guess, it, you know, what you're referring to is, like, amongst the Somalis, um, mm-hmm. uh, people, the men tend to marry uh, a woman from from a different clan in order to sort of cement relationships with, with the clans, you know. Mm-hmm. But that's advantageous for the men. Uh, in a sense, women are used um, as like mediums of exchange, you know. Right. Just as they have been in other cultures as well, of course. But um, for the women, it doesn't work that well because when when there are clan um, wars, she's she's kind of stuck. You know, she's got to stay with her husband. But that often means fighting against 
her, her father's clan or her brother's clan or her uncle's clan, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or others, for that matter. So um, I think women have a, a hard time um, in the clan system, and, mm-hmm. and that's probably why most of them are quite happy to have nothing to do with it. And they, they, they mix very freely across clans, and they help one another. The clan you know, membership is not important to them. Um, right. And the, the, the other women, the Eritrean and Ethiopian women, are, are doing well. Um, uh, so are the Somali women, actually. But, um, you know, the Pacific Northwest is very much a feminist um, mm-hmm. society, and, and it, it, it empowers women, um, tends to help them. They, the, women, the women get jobs uh, much more easily than the men do. And yeah. for them, it, it's, it's, been, it's been wonderful because uh, very often they didn't have jobs at home and now they, they earn their own money, which gives them a certain amount of power. Right. And they're able to negotiate with their husbands. Um, right. But it, it does, of course, create problems as well. And, um, and especially if, if, if the, woman, the woman escaped first, you know, and went mm-hmm. to a refugee camp and had time to, um, you know, to settle in the new country of refuge. And then the man often came much later. You know, mm-hmm. he stayed behind looking after their interests or whatever. And, um, and that, that's, that's been difficult because, you know, the woman would be, um, you know, have a job and get be used to sort of living a relatively independent life. And then, you know, the right. husband would come and say, well... You know, mind you, yeah. my supper. Right. <laughs> yeah, so it upset the, the gender rules. Um, and what you were talking about earlier about men feeling, um, the, you know, men sort of perpetuating the, the, the hate, especially older men, because they right. feel disenfranchised in a way. Yeah, um, so it's, it's, been, it's been very difficult for, for a lot of men, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, the challenges are hard for everybody, but... Uh, I, I do think it's, it's difficult for men. Mm-hmm. Um, you you talk about Somalia and Somaliland. Um, what is the difference between those two? Okay, um, Somalia originally was was the the country that was mm-hmm. was um, put together. It was sort of unified in the sixties, and but then when war broke out, well. Um, the civil war broke out uh, in the, the 80s, and eventually in 1991, the dictator, Sir uh, Barre, fled. But mm-hmm. um, there was so much violence that the, the, the part of Somalia in the north, um, which used to be a British colony, separated from the rest of Somalia and mm-hmm. made declared their independence, and that is Somaliland. So Somaliland is just that one portion, and it's, it's independent at the moment, but it hasn't been acknowledged internationally. So, okay. um, you know, just before uh, Siad Barre fled, um, well, actually, it was, it was in the 80s, um, he... Uh, 
his, his people, um, his clan people, really uh, persecuted and, and murdered, you know, many of the people in, in um, the area that is now Somaliland. And um, that is why they wanted to separate themselves from the violence. Most of the violence was in the south, around okay. the, the area that, that, um, that is the breadbasket of, of Somalia. It's where, where all the food is grown between the two rivers. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, there was, the fighting had a lot to do with, with um, uh, you know, property and resources, trying to get the, um, the, the productive land, the fertile land, it's called the Afgoi. And you said that um, out of the three, these three Horn of Africa communities, that you think the Somalis have had a worse time of it? than the other two groups? Um, yes, in the sense that um, they still have to work under, under suspicion. Because of the war on terrorism, there still mm. is a lot of um, suspicion about, about um, Somali Muslims. Mm. And you just have to have one case of you know, a young um, Somali Muslim um, American going back right. to Somalia, and then you know everybody gets um, you know painted with the same brush, and they right, so, right. You know, I was surprised actually that that Somali spoke to me so so easily, you know, mm-hmm. was so open with me, given the fact that um, you know the Puget Sound uh, terrorism task forces, you know it. It's, it's keeping check on things, and um, sure. uh, but people did did speak very very openly, and, and Somalis are, are, in my experience, a very straightforward, um, you know, forthright mm-hmm. people, and um, you know, often I had to say, uh, "Are you sure you want to say this?" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I, I asked you know, this one. One young woman, um, you know, what do you think of uh, Siad Barre? Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, many people think he was, you know, he was a, well, he was a despot and all this sort of thing. And um, but there are people who think that uh, at least Somalia was a country when he ruled. You know, even no matter what he did, the country was mm-hmm. was, you know, in one one piece. Right. She said, I think he's a murdering bastard who destroyed the country, <laughs> you know? Right, right, yeah. And I mean, you know, they have family back home. And mm-hmm. you sort of you wonder. And, you know, I, as I say, I, I kept asking, are you sure you want me to say this? And right. after I, I had uh, completed the book, before, you know, it went to press, everybody had a chance to check what I had said and to edit it, to take it out, or to decide if they wanted to say it anonymously, or uh-huh. to be given a fictional name, you know. Um, and, and none of the Somalis did. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. You know, it they changed like the word. It really that freedom of speech. Right, right. They, they felt safer here, I guess. 
Yeah. Interesting. Um, well, you said actually that there were many different reasons why people wanted to talk to you. Yes. Um, you know, I I think it's a little bit like um, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, you know, mm-hmm. where um, just so much was suppressed that people just wanted to to have their stories witnessed, you know, written down, confirmed right. that that actually did happen. No. Right. And and also I think that um uh certainly with Ethiopians and Eritreans and I, you know, again I'm you know, a lot of this is generalizations. I you know, I say sure. talking as if they're one, but of course, you know, there's everyone's an individual. But um they as a generalization they they um they very often are not thinking about themselves, they're thinking about uh you know, well, so-and-so's life is so much worse, and they don't think about what they've suffered, you know, they don't examine it. Um, and and often I felt that um, when they were telling me their stories, mm-hmm. they, they were, that some, some of them were telling it for the first time. You know? mm-hmm. And then one, one young woman I spoke to said, you know, um, for a couple of weeks after I spoke to you, I couldn't understand why I felt so um, sort of down. Yeah. And and obviously it, it, it was sort of, you know, opening opening scars or sure. you know, seeing seeing their story in, in, in a pattern or even a narrative. Mm-hmm. Right. And um and yeah, maybe it was a way of distancing themselves from it. You said that sometimes you had a harder time maintaining your composure than they did. That's in right. Terms of, yeah, yeah, very often um, they did tell this, you know, when you're saying they distanced themselves, very often they did speak of themselves as if they were, as if it was in the third person, you know, and they were just talking about this person who was doing this. It wasn't right. them, you know. Right. Yeah. This didn't happen to me. It was, right. Yeah. 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 Well, I wonder if maybe um, with, you know, traumas as, as as terrible, you know, as the ones they've experienced, that it's kind of the only way to, to get it out. I don't know. I'm just but Yeah. No, I, I'm sure. You know, I mean, with things like rape, for example, there was so much right. rape. And uh, obviously people, you know, they don't want to talk about it. And nobody mm-hmm. talked to me about it, except one young woman who um, who mentioned that, you know, there was an attempted rape on her. You know. mm-hmm. But but it, it, we we know that it, it's happened with, with thousands, and it's still right. happening in Somalia. And mm-hmm. the the Al Shabaab are um, apparently um, raping left, right, and centre, and they're supposed to be the you know the moral uh, religious group, you know, that, you know, that, that sort of um, punish women who, you know, don't cover their hair or, you know, that kind of thing, or, or play Western music. But anyway. Yeah, it's really used as kind of like a weapon. Yeah, yeah no, it definitely. Yeah. Um, who are the Rastafarians? Because I had heard of them before, and then I read about them again in your book. Um, but I was a little bit unclear as to who they were. <laughs> yes. Um, well, um, mainly from Jamaica, and they they worshipped 
Hale Selassie, um, you know, uh, when, when Hale Selassie kind of um, reinvigorated this, this story about um, the Queen of Sheba and, and uh, King Solomon, and, um, the, you know, nobody knows how much is true and what is myth, and, you know, but people... Obviously, people are brought up on these on these stories, and um, the, apparently, uh, in I, I think in the Quran, um, Solomon had a dream in which he he saw a star moving from Jerusalem to uh, to Aksum in Ethiopia. And um, uh, well, I'm going to go back a little bit in the story. Um, this, this child that was supposedly born of um, to the Queen of Sheba, when he was a, a grown man, uh, he was. She sent him back to his to visit his father, um, who you know was a, a wise ruler, and she wanted to learn from him, and. And this young man apparently, um, with with his his uh, co-Ethiopians, um, took the um, uh, what do you call it? The, the um, I, I'm trying to think of the exact terminology. Uh, <laughs> the the ark. You know, oh, supposedly uh, yeah. containing, you know, the the, the commandments, and right. and brought them back to Ethiopia to Aksum, mm-hmm. and which is, you know, in the uh, the highlands of Ethiopia, and uh, and they supposedly they are still there today, and um, so when when uh, um, Hale Selassie, um, you know, made himself emperor of, the, of, of Ethiopia, and you know, in this line of descent from, the, the, you know, um, King Solomon, and with the, you know, Axum having the, the Ark of the Covenant, mm-hmm. people started thinking of him as the new God. Mm-hmm. You know <laughs> that God now favored uh, not the Jews, you know, right. and Israel, but Ethiopia, and mm-hmm. um, and because you know of you know having defeated the the, the um, colonial Italians, uh, all of yeah. these things played into it, and so that the um, certain Jamaicans started this uh, this religion, Rastafarianism. Mm. And um, they uh, they actually were welcomed by Ethiopia, and they uh, they were even given a um, a piece of land there where if they wanted to come back home, people African people started um, thinking of Ethiopia as home, mm-hmm. and, uh, and African Americans did too. Really? Yeah. yeah. And so, um, you know, the Rastafarians 
you know, periodically go over and stay in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. And the other Ethiopians don't really recognize them. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's how, how it came about. Right. But there they are. Yeah. 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 And I mean, they're, they're Rastafarians in New York and, you know, various other countries too. And, yeah. the, you know, um, they, they wear their hair in dreadlocks. And that's, you know. Yeah, that's what I was remembering. I, I remember seeing something about that and I thought it was some kind of fashion thing. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> right. The history behind it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in terms of uh, the future for these communities in the Pacific Northwest, do you see hope? Do you think that things are going to get better um, or not so much? I do see hope. I mean, already, um, you know, they've been here for quite a long time. I mean, most of them came after, you know, 1991 onwards. But, but um, some have been here for as long as, uh, you know, 40 years. Some came in the early days um, as students to study and then they couldn't go back because, um, uh, you know, the country had been um, you know, nationalized and all the land and their businesses taken and all that sort of thing. Um, so they, you know, they've, they're, they're established here, you know, um, and many have become wealthy and many have become mm-hmm. very educated. There are lots at Microsoft. Um, the guy who discovered, uh, you know, the Bowflex exercise machine? Yes. That whole system, <laughs> you know, uh, became a public company. Um, he, he's an Ethiopian. He's the patent holder on it. Uh, wow. A lot of people who, who, you know, become very, very successful. Um, right. You know, but there are also many who, who are struggling as, as parking lot attendants and, um, you know, garage attendants. You know, so it, it, it's uh, it's hard, and and I think it's uh, it, it's the, the most difficult, as I said earlier, I think for the for these Somalis. Right. Yeah, they're having a, a harder time of it. Yeah. yeah. But the young, um, those of mixed ethnicity, the women, um, the educated, those are the ones who are, you know, doing the best because right. you know they they integrated. Um, mm-hmm. Work with other people, cooperate. You know, it, it just makes it easier to, you know, to get on. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, my book really deals more with, um, you know, the older generation in the sense mm-hmm. that they're the ones who have had the problems. You know? Right. Um, yeah. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in forty or fifty years when. Right. Right. No, yeah. I'm. I'm really keen to. Um, to explore that, you know, the second yeah. generation, and yeah. you know, I gave a I gave a talk uh, in front of um, for a Somali group, and there were uh, almost 200 young Somalis, and most of them were female, and they were all university students, you know, mm-hmm. and all doing wonderful things. Yeah, you know, so um, they were from maybe in their, you know. 18, 19, 20 years of age. And, right. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's very hopeful. Yes. Yeah. It's like, well, maybe you can redo these interviews in about 40 years and, uh, you know, ask them how they're doing and how it contrasts with yes, uh, yes. 
yes, no, yeah. I, I hope to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So your book is published by the University of Washington Press. That's right. And it's available on Amazon and anywhere else that you know oh, it, Yeah. Well, certainly in Seattle, it's, you know, um, most bookstores, but uh, mm-hmm. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, Border Books, you know, I mean, you can, you know, online you can get them uh, in a lot of places. Right. Okay, great. Uh, Sandra, thank you so much for being with us today. It was a really, really interesting conversation. Thank you very much. You have been listening to an interview with Sandra Chait, author of Seeking Salam, Ethiopians, Eritreans, and Somalis in the Pacific Northwest. This is your hostess, Annie Sebukaya. Thank you for listening to New Books and Sociology.